David Carpet, special correspondent for the Diz Unplugged. When Marty Sklar retired on July 17, 2009, the 54th anniversary of Disneyland Park in California, his title was Executive Vice President and Ambassador for Walt Disney Imagineering. After 53 years of working as a Disney cast member, Marty Sklar received a tribute window on Main Street USA in Disneyland, the place where he began his Disney career one month before opening day of Walt Disney's original theme park. Marty Sklar's career with the Walt Disney Company progressed from staff writer to vice president of concepts and planning, and then to president of Walt Disney Imagineering. His final position was principal creative executive of Walt Disney Imagineering. Marty Sklar was directly involved in the design of Disney park attractions such as the Enchanted Tiki Room, It's a Small World, Carousel of Progress, and Space Mountain, to name just a few. He was also the only Disney cast member who participated in the opening of all 11 Disney theme parks. And he was inducted as a Disney legend in 2001. Fellow Disney legend Jim Cora, retired president and chairman of Disneyland International, described Marty Sklar in the following way. He understands the Disney way because he learned it at Walt's knee. He is the keeper of the keys, the conscience, the Jiminy Cricket for the organization. And Marty Sklar is one of the invited keynote speakers of the Diz Unplugged, appearing at our December event, Dizapalooza, and agreed to sit down with us for an exclusive interview to share his experiences working with and for Walt Disney, the man and the company. So thank you very much for joining us, Marty. It's truly an honor. Oh, it's my pleasure, Dave. When you started with the Walt Disney Company in 1955, you were a college student at UCLA and editor for the college newspaper, The Daily Bruin. Could you describe how you were recruited to create a tabloid 1890s-style newspaper, the Disneyland News, that was sold on Main Street? Yes, some, someone had recommended uh, me to Card Walker, and uh, Mr. Walker called me at my fraternity where I was living at UCLA and uh, I didn't even return the call because I thought one of my fraternity brothers was playing a trick on me because nobody had a name card as a, well I later learned that it was E. Carden Walker and he was the head of marketing for Disney at the time and much later the CEO of the company That's actually. Right. and uh, fortunately uh, Card Walker called back and uh, asked me to come in for an interview. And it turned out that Walt wanted someone to put out the tabloid newspaper, 1890 style on Main Street at Disneyland, and they hired me to uh, do that job. And I went to work one month before Disneyland opened. I went to work in June of 1955. And two weeks after I went to work, I had to present the concept to Walt Disney. The Walt Disney. And so you were a college student at the time. I was a college student and never went, and that's why uh, I lasted 53 or 54 years at Disney. So what do you remember from that opening day at Disneyland? The opening day was a madhouse. Uh, you know, there's so many stories about that. that uh, they invited something like 15 or 16,000 people, and 30, over 30,000 showed up because of counterfeit tickets and people who rushed the gate and all kinds of stuff. And it was a, a madhouse, but uh, I worked part of the day in uh, 
the way the television show worked, they went 55 minutes live, uh, and then they they gave it to the local station, you know, KABC. It was on ABC, by the way, and, and Disney had nothing to do with ABC at that time, and gave it to the local station. And I was working with the local people for most of the day. The second half of the day, I was out in the park. And I remember distinctly Fess Parker, uh, Davy Crockett, Crockett, riding up to me in his horse and seeing my name tag and saying, Marty, get me out of here before this horse hurts somebody. <laughs> and it was that kind of day. I mean, yeah. It was uh, pretty wild. And uh, I was living in Long Beach, which is about 20 miles from Anaheim. And uh, between my house, I was living with my parents. And between the park and uh, that part of Long Beach, there was hardly anything. It was open land, practically, except for a few bars along the way. And I think I hit every every one of them on the way home. Doing what a good college student should be doing at that point. Absolutely. After graduating from college, you came back, you worked for Disney, you wrote for Walt Disney himself for about 10 years, and really helped him to articulate his vision that he used in publications, television, film. What was it like working side-by-side with Walt Disney? Well, it was a unique opportunity for me at at a young age like that, being exposed to Walt, and, and, you know, I was... I was the kid at Imagineering at the time with so many fabulous veterans, uh, Mark Davis and Claude Coates and John Hench and Herb Ryman and Exitensio and Roly Crump and Blaine Gibson and, and Bob Gurr. You know, they were all my uh, my mentors in so many ways, especially John. John Hench and I uh, became very close over the years, and, you know, it ended up with uh, the two of us being the key people in creating Epcot. But in those days, I was really learning the business at the foot of all those uh, wonderful people. And I had an opportunity uh, early on to write some things that Walt wanted to do that he hadn't had the opportunity before Disneyland opened. One was to do a uh, booklet about Disneyland that could be given to potential sponsors. And uh, there were two companions to that. One was uh, a, a booklet we did about Liberty Street uh, because Walt wanted to do a Liberty Street in Disneyland. And the other was called Edison Square. Yes. And he wanted to do an area in Disneyland called uh, Edison Square. And uh, both of those things came to fruition many years later. Edison Square as the Carousel of Progress and uh, Liberty Street, of course, and the Magic Kingdom here in Walt Disney World. So uh, I had the the opportunity to write and put those uh, pieces out. And and then I started writing things for uh, Walt, for the souvenir guides that were uh, sold in the parks and uh, ultimately for annual reports. And I used to work with both Roy Disney uh, Sr. and Walt Disney. And actually, the annual reports, because they were financial documents, 
were Roy's project, and uh, I would sit down with Roy, and he would tell me what he wanted to do, and it was my job with a couple of great artists, Bobby Moore, who did all the marketing art at the time for the studio, and uh, Norm Rossetti was a great artist, and uh, we did the annual report for about three or four years, and changed the way Disney did those annual reports, which previously in the early 60s had been very uh, dry financial mm -hmm. documents, and we gave it a th each one of them a theme and a story. And uh, put some I, creativity in it. Yeah, they became uh, sales pitches for the company in many ways, and uh, we take our cue from what Roy wanted to do, and then I would. Uh, figure out how to write Walt's copy to go along with that, and, and uh, uh, then we take it to Walt, and, and he, uh, it wasn't his primary uh, focus, but uh, I always got input from him, and my red, my red pen marks. <laughs> That's right. I was going to ask, so what type of critique and feedback would you get from, from Walt Disney? Well, you always got feedback from Walt on, on uh, whatever it was uh, in, uh, in his own handwriting. And uh, he was very articulate uh, with his notes. And uh, if you ever have a chance in the archives at the Disney studio to see some of the scripts for films, you see Walt's notes all over them. He was uh, into every project he did, and and he knew where he was going and what he wanted to accomplish. Very hands-on. Absolutely, which was great. You know, it's a fabulous uh, uh, learning experience for me at that time. Yeah. You were then selected by Walt Disney, hand-selected to be part of the team to develop shows and pavilions for the 1964 World's Fair in New York City. Some of those attractions included It's a Small World, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, Magic Skyway, Carousel of Progress, what at that time was Progress Land. But at the time, when you were working on those projects, developing those plans, did you have a sense or realize what an impact those were going to be for the future of Disney parks? You know, we, we really didn't because we were so busy just trying to do those shows uh, because we started out working with GE and then Ford and then uh, the state of Illinois and then a year before the fair opened, UNICEF came to Walt and asked him to do a pavilion about the children of the world. And uh, literally within 11 months from first idea to opening, we did It's a Small World. So we were just running as fast as we could and trying to get everything done. But, you know, in retrospect, you could see exactly what Walt was doing. He, he really wanted to grow Disneyland and uh, use other people's money to do that in the best sense of the word. And uh, the way he chose to do it was to try to get the companies to bring the, the attractions from the World's Fair to Disneyland. And uh, he had even uh, at the time, they had to, to uh, for the first time, put a value on Walt Disney's name. And they decided that for the course of the fair, the two years the fair was open, that uh, just his name rights was a million dollars. And uh, 
Walt was so interested in not the money, but rather in getting those companies to come into Disneyland, that he said to them that if you come into Disneyland, the million dollars is your down payment, mm-hmm. and it's your first. Yeah, the first part of your payment on being in Disneyland, and GE decided to do it, and, and Ford decided not to do it, and uh, the company owned uh, It's a Small World in the beginning, and of course the, the Lincoln show uh, was, in fact, Lincoln was uh, in Disneyland uh, the second year of the fair. We opened it in Disneyland. Is that right, even before the fair closed? Then? Even before the fair closed. And it's a small world. We we actually built it in Burbank, even built the trough that the boats went on. And uh, all of that was shipped to New York because we only had 11 months. <laughs> you couldn't go around looking for vendors in New York. You had to just get it done wherever right, you could. Right. So all of that, the sets, the figures, the trough, everything moved back to California. And when It's a Small World opened at Disneyland in 1966, that was straight out of the World's Fair. Wow. wow. And uh, so Walt was, and the other thing he was doing is at the time, Disney films didn't do as well in New York City as they did in other parts of the country. And so he was kind of testing the water about building a, a quote, Disneyland, unquote, somewhere else in the country as a stepping stone. So the World's Fair was kind of a stepping stone to Florida. That's exactly what I was going to ask. If if he was conscious of that decision, you know, that was very cognizant in his mind that he was testing the waters on the East Coast, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in fact, uh, in fact, he had been approached by RCA. Uh, to do a project in uh, the south of Florida, and ultimately decided not to. But it was even during the World's Fair when they were buying the land for Walt Disney World. After the World's Fair, in late 1966, he wrote a script for Walt Disney for a short 20-minute film designed to communicate his vision for Epcot, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. And unfortunately, that turned out to be Walt Disney's last filmed appearance. Could you talk a little bit about the production of that film with Walt Disney? Well, I had the opportunity to to work with two wonderful people who at the time were doing all the the park shows for the the television series. And I was Ham Lusk and and Max Stewart. And uh, Ham was one of the stars of the 1930s animation. I think he... Uh, probably best known for uh, the tortoise in the hair. Oh yes. And uh, he he was a director in animation and had evolved into doing uh, television, the park shows like Disney Goes to the World's Fair and shows about Disneyland. And they were wonderful people to work with. I loved working with them. And you know we really didn't have a lot of materials to tell that whole story, and so we were borrowing from lots of different developments really for, uh, to make that 20-minute film that we did. And the whole purpose of the film was to communicate about Disney um, and Walt's vision for Epcot. Uh, and 
it was designed to help uh, sell the Florida legislature on creating what was originally called the Reedy Creek Drainage District and ultimately was changed the name, changed the Reedy Creek Improvement District, uh, which exists today. Right. And uh, the whole idea was uh, Walt uh, would travel around to the uh, great laboratories in American industry, the GE labs, the Sarnoff labs at RCA, DuPont, uh, uh, Ford, uh, IBM. And every time Walt would come to one of those labs, they'd trot out the latest thing they were working on. And quite often they were had nothing to do with products they were selling. And Walt would say, well, when can I buy a product based on that technology? And they'd look at him and say, well, we don't know if the public would be interested in this. So he came to think that he could be a uh, kind of a middleman between industry and the public, uh, showcasing and demonstrating products and, and new ideas. And really, that's how Epcot uh, started to evolve. And uh, he had a lot of work being done uh, on uh, ideas for how to build a community. I remember one book that I had, had any number of meetings with them about the script. I still have about eight pages of notes from those meetings. And uh, he, he was constantly uh, saying to me, I want to make sure that we, we meet the needs of people mm -hmm. in, in this project. That was a real focus. So I think a lot of Walt's thinking came from experiences that he had, not only visiting those uh, uh, laboratories in American industry, but I remember one story he told me about he and Mrs. Disney babysat for uh, uh, Diane, and Diane Disney Miller and Ron Miller's children while they went off on the weekend. And, uh, happened that the trash trucks, they lived, they lived on a street where there was an alley behind the house. And uh, about six o'clock in the morning, one morning, the trash trucks came uh, down the alley, tossing the trash cans in all directions, a woke wall up. And he started thinking, why, why isn't there a better way to uh, collect trash? And that led to eventually to the AVAC system we installed here at Walt Disney World from the beginning because we were looking for something that would meet that the needs of people. Again. Very basic need. Absolutely. And it goes back to the beginning of Disneyland, too, where you hear the stories of Walt wanted a place where he could take his, his children. Absolutely. In fact, he, he made that very clear that Disneyland came from his experiences in taking Diane and Sharon, his two daughters, to uh, amusement parks and particularly a little amusement park at uh, Beverly Boulevard in La Cienega, where the Beverly Center is a big development now in Los Angeles. But there, there was a little uh, amusement park, and uh, he would, he said, he would have to sit on the park bench eating peanuts or popcorn while the girls had all the fun. And he started thinking, why 
isn't there some place where children and their parents can have fun together? And if you if you think about Disneyland, there was only one attraction that came the second year. It was called Junior Autopia. And it lasted one year, and Walt took it out. The reason was that everything else in the park, and this goes for today, are things that, that adults and children can do together. The Junior Autopia, only little kids could go on. And that was a throwback to something that had frustrated him with his own daughters. Mm -hmm. And so he wanted everything to be participatory and to be story-based but things that adults and children could do together. Yeah, that's great. And getting back to the idea of Epcot being a, a solution to the urban crisis, to the modern city, a lot of architects today, if you look at the readings, say, look at Disneyland. Disneyland is a model of urban planning. I know it's used in some of the architecture schools as that as well. Well, I think one of the things that made us proudest after Walt Disney World opened was David Brinkley, who was then at NBC, came here and did a, a piece for his uh, nightly news where he said that this was the greatest piece of urban development in the country. And a lot of people felt that way because uh, we separated people from their cars and put them in uh, other kinds of transportation. And we had energy systems that were, you know, trash collection systems and uh, so many different things that where uh, we tried to carry out the philosophy, even if it wasn't the, the city that Walt had uh, envisioned. We, carried out the philosophy. In fact, I wrote the preamble to the Epcot building code, and I'm not an engineer in any respect, but the whole idea was to express the philosophy, and the philosophy was how do we encourage American industry to develop and demonstrate new systems and new uh, new technologies where the public could see it. Sure. So then in 1974, you became the creative leader for Walt Disney Imagineering. Walt Disney World Resort had been open in Florida for about three years. And the current Walt Disney Company CEO, Carden Walker, Card Walker, who you also mentioned earlier, um, giving you your, your first interview, he calls you up, and one of the first phone calls he has is, so what are we going to do about Walt's idea for Epcot? How do you react to that phone call? I think I fell off my chair. <laughs> uh, you know, this was a, a daunting moment for uh, me or for anybody because how do you pick up a big, big idea like Epcot and do something with it? Well, we decided that the only way we could really get our heads around it was to hold a series of conferences here in Florida. And we had one on energy, we had one on health, we had one on uh, transportation, we had one on food, and uh, probably a couple of others. And we invited people that we researched uh, from academia, from uh, companies, big companies, from government, uh, and we discussed what kinds of communication there should be uh, to motivate the public and inform the public. 
and it all done under the guise of fun, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was very interesting because these people came from uh, all kinds of pedigrees, I guess you'd say. Very smart, lots of big thinkers. And uh, after every meeting, it, it would come back to us. They'd say, look, the public doesn't trust what industry tells them. They don't trust what government tells them. But they all trust Mickey Mouse. So you people have a role to play. So we developed the whole idea that we were going to communicate um, the best information we could have in an entertaining way and, uh, and to do it where we knew that you could only, what I called, as I talked to our staff at Imaginary, and said, look, well, what we're doing is turn-ons. We want to get people excited about knowing more and at the same time having fun while they're doing it. And so don't think that you have to tell the, the whole story here. And in fact, when we opened Epcot, we had an information center where we, you could reach out to what was happening in energy all over the country, what was happening in food, different places in the world. And uh, uh, we had only one criteria. It was long before the internet. That would have been easy if we could have uh, had people come in and use their computers, but the computers didn't exist. So uh, uh, we had to, what we did was, we found sources that, that we felt people could, could reach out to, and we made a deal with them that if we listed them in our brochures, that they had to respond within 10 days to any inquiry that came from the public. And uh, it worked out very well. It was uh, an adjunct to the entertainment, to the big pavilions. Sure. And uh, it's kind of like what has become uh, interventions. You know, we started out to do those things, and uh, interventions is is uh, terrific, I think, today in Epcot because it gives, uh, it allows small ideas right. um, that uh, you can't build a whole pavilion right. for, and and you can demonstrate and test different things right. for the public. They're very hands-on, very interactive. Absolutely. So I think that in a way that that has. Uh, reinforce what we started out to try to do in it. Was there ever any consideration when you were first developing this idea or when Card Walker approached you with, with Epcot of going back to Walt Disney's original plan and making a living, working community? Well, by then, of course, Walt Disney World was established as a resort destination. And uh, no, I don't think so. The company... Disney wasn't uh, big enough and strong enough at the time to take something like that on. And I, you know, I, I, from my standpoint, I don't think it was possible without Walt Disney mm -hmm. because Walt Disney could walk into uh, any big company and, and uh, this, the chairman or the CEO welcome him 
and listen to his story, listen to his pitch, if you will. And we have nobody like that. Nobody, there, there isn't anybody that can do that kind of thing. Not only at Disney, right, right. but Walt had the, uh, he had the reputation and uh, the World's Fair, I mean, he was the star of the World's Fair. The four Disney shows were uh, the four out of the, out of the top five shows at the fair. And so what was uh, with some of those companies and some of those uh, chairmen, uh, he was uh, a god, you know. He was, it sounds like he was not only a person that had you know, the intellectual, the genius, but he had the, the charisma to, to get people to believe in his idea as well. Well, you talk to any of uh, my colleagues. Uh, I was just on a panel at uh, IAPA, the International uh, Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions. Their annual convention happened to be in Las Vegas. I was on a panel with Richard Sherman and, and Blaine Gibson and Bob Gurr and, and Buzz Price and uh, the, the five of us, actually. And uh, we all had the same message that, that Walt inspired all of us and made it very clear to all of us that whatever we had done before was never going to be good enough again because he was moving on. And so we had to get better every time we did a project. Uh, and, you know, the parks reflected that, the growth of Disneyland, the new things that were being done, the planning for Walt Disney World, all of those were and giant steps forward as we uh, went along. By the way, there's, uh, I should re reflect on going back to your question about the World's Fair. The World's Fair was a big uh, watershed in this respect. Before the fair, uh, the capacities of attractions were not very significant, but once that water ride for It's a Small World was invented, where you could carry 3,600 people an hour in a boat ride. That made the Pirates of the Caribbean right. possible. Because before that time, Pirates of the Caribbean was on the drawing table as a walkthrough. As a walkthrough. And uh, when Walt, after we'd done the, the It's a Small World affair, the first thing he did was come back and he said, we can't do a walkthrough, we can't handle enough people. And the operating people, you know, of course, were very much against walkthroughs because uh, they realized that you could only handle six or seven hundred people an hour, and that wasn't good enough anymore. And uh, so here was uh, an opportunity to, to be able to tell a story and in a dramatic fashion and at the same time handle over 3,000 people an hour. That was major, major leap forward. Sure. I was able to read some of your comments from the panel. You had mentioned the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions panel discussion you were on. And I saw a quote that was attributed to you where you said, Walt was the greatest casting director that ever lived. He knew not to pigeonhole anyone. You never know what you might find when you give somebody an opportunity. And it really seems like that was true for your career as well. Hired as a college journalism student and eventually ended up as president and principal creative executive of Walt Disney Imagineering. So what advice would you give to those young people out there today who have the dream or desire to become an Imagineer? Well, you've got to do it. You've got to work at it. Yeah. Also, and I've told young people this for years, 
probably answered hundreds of letters over the years. You know, learn as much as you can about as many things as you can when you're young and try a lot of different things because you never know what you're going to find that you like doing and what you're good at. And if you just say, well, I'm going to be such and such and do such and such, you're pigeonholing yourself. While you're young, especially, you should try as many things as you can, have as many experiences as you can, so that you can really figure out what you like to do and how you want to spend all those years of your life that are ahead of you. And I think that's really important. Uh, and you never know what uh, what education is. Uh, you're learning different subjects, how that's going to pay off in the future. Reflecting back on some of my advisors and mentors and college professors, and I think the ones that always made the biggest impact on me were the ones that pushed me to do more than I thought I could accomplish. And it sounds like that's exactly what Walt Disney was doing with his team as well. Well, Walt was uh, Buzz Price who, you know, did the site study for Disneyland and, and for Walt Disney World and uh, worked on a lot of the economic feasibility studies. Uh, he, had, he said it right. He, he said, you could say to Walt, yes, if yes, if you do this, then such and such, but you can never say no because, because he would find somebody who was willing to take a risk and try whatever it was that you didn't think would work. And uh, I think it's really good advice because as Buzz Price said, you know, no because or no whatever reason is the uh, language of a deal killer. And yes, if is the language of somebody who wants to make the deal. Sure. And uh, that's what Walt wanted. He wanted to make the deal all the time. Walt didn't really care what your your role was supposed to be. He had a uh, something in mind for you that you never. And, and I know in my case, I mean, I was uh, sitting having coffee at uh, uh, we had a Hills Brothers coffee shop on Main Street at Disneyland, and uh, this was, I guess, uh, about 1960. And Walt came in. I was uh, sitting with Eddie Mack, who was a publicity director for Disneyland, and my boss. And I wrote all the publicity, and Eddie planted it in, in the media, whatever it was. And Walt sat down and he, he turned to me after a while and he said, well, what are you doing, Marty? And I said, uh, well, I'm doing all the publicity with Eddie. And, and uh, he said, he looked at Eddie and he said, well, we're going to have to give you something more important to do. <laughs> and I don't know what he'd seen in me. You know, I had, as I said, I had the opportunity to write a number of different things for him. And, and uh, he had and decided that uh, I was going to be doing something else uh, that as he saw the need. And uh, I think about Exitensio, who uh, had never written a script in his life, and Walt sent him over to Imaginarium and called him one day and said, Ex, I want you to write the script for the Pirates of the Caribbean. And Ex said, I don't know how to write a script. And Walt said, we'll try. 
And so he did, and then X came back and said, how about a song? I got an idea for a song, you know? Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. And so, I mean, you talked to Richard and Robert Sherman, and, you know, they, they just idolize the opportunities they had to work with Walt Disney in developing story and in having the opportunity to do things that they never thought they would be doing. They were all over the place. I mean, Blaine Gibson, who was our chief sculptor at Imaginary, he was an animator, and that's all he wanted to do. He was a good animator, but not one of the greats. But Walt saw an exhibit that he did at the studio library, and Blaine had done some sculpture to go along with somebody's art. And he put that in the back of his mind, and one day he called Blaine and he said, I want you to uh, be my sculptor on Disneyland. And Blaine said, no, I want to be in animation. And Walt said, no, 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 no I want you to do this. And Blaine, it's, uh, to this day, thanks Walt for 30 years as the, yeah. as the greatest sculptor who ever worked in our business. You know? Yeah. Oh, you have those stories. Bob Gurr, I always kid Bob. Uh, he designed all the vehicles for Disneyland, and he designed the first Lincoln figure. And I said, Bob, why didn't you tell Walt when he said you, he wanted you to engineer this? Why didn't you tell him you don't know anything about engineering? <laughs> and Bob said, no, no, you didn't tell Walt that you didn't know. You found out. Well, that's great. I think a great story and a great way to end. And again, I'd like to thank Disney Imagineering legend Marty Sklar for taking the time to speak with us. I'm very much looking forward to your presentation tomorrow. This is David Parkett signing off with the Diz Unplugged. Thanks for listening. Thank you, David.